Hello, beautiful people. I'm Heat, host of Ordinary Chaos, where we explore the interesting side of ordinary. We often see famous people as interesting and not famous people as not interesting, but the truth is we're all interesting if you ask the right questions. This episode is one of a special three-part bundle within the Person Next Door series. If you're new to Ordinary Chaos, the Person Next Door is a regular person whose daily life might look something like our own. In this mini-series, I'm talking to three trans people. I start and end the conversations much like I've done for any of the others in this series, but the messy middle, that's all about their experience of being trans. In these episodes, there's a bit of coarse language, and there are some topics that you may or may not want your kids to hear, though penis amputation is the only direct mention of genitalia, and we have no explicit conversations about sex. With that, I hope you enjoy these as much as I did. Heat here today with Macy. Macy is an amazing human being who I've I met a long, long time ago and have been in touch with thanks to social media. And Macy loves people. Tell us what you love about people, Macy. I love the incredible story that we all tell, humanity in all of our forms and all of our variations all across the world, you know, as far as different cultures. I love learning about mythology and history and the different cultural expressions because of that. Under it all, I mean, we all live, laugh, bleed, hate, and fear the same. It's just a matter of how we express that. And I think it's beautiful. That's beautiful. Diving into questions, what would Mm -hmm. your younger self be surprised about your current self? Oh, you're asking hard ones. I got to think about these. (laughs) (laughs) What would my younger self be surprised about my current self? Well, I never could have predicted that I would have uh, transitioned in my 40s. So I, I think that one would probably be a shocker. Maybe ending up working a desk job. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I still feel like that young person. So sometimes it's hard to think of it as being separate individuals. I mean, we're not. It's just been this long, slow road, and I'm I'm grateful to have been on it so far. So can we talk about transitioning in your 40s? Mm -hmm. I guess, what was the prompt? You know, it's never really, uh, you know, and here I am speaking for everybody else, you know, but uh, it's, it's not uncommon, I guess, especially for later transitioners. It's not this sudden realization of, oh my God, it's this. It's more like things along the way that make you go, huh? And then you forget about it sometimes for years at a time, or sometimes you know it's there and it's just there doing its thing until comes a moment and you come to this realization. Is it that? No, no, it's not that. Maybe it should be anything but that. Maybe it should be that. And you muse over that. You know, and you're in a different place in life than a younger person. And the challenges are different. You know, they're not harder. They're not worse. It's just different. Again, people, we're all different. But it starts to gnaw at you a little bit more that there's something that is left undone. You know, something that isn't fitting the way it was supposed to. And for me, it's more about when I look back a bunch of signs that were there. No, it isn't like a lot of stories that you hear about, oh, well, when I was a kid, I used to try on my mother's dresses or things like that. For me, and this is maybe my thing, and I don't know how anybody else processes this, I knew fairly young that I had a feminine side, let's say. And I never thought much about it because I always thought, that everybody had a little bit of something. You think of like uh, the depiction of the yin-yang, where there's the light and the dark, and yet in the center of each, there's a bit of the other. And I've I've read about this. I've thought about that, you know, over the years and thought, well, I have a feminine side and that's fine and it's there and I, and I like it and that's cool. And went through my life feeling like a man, even though some parts of it, more so even looking back, but when I real, realized processing the emotions at the time that some of it is performative because you're supposed to be in this role. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, I remember I would hang out with my female friends, let's say, and there would be a, a woman fairly new to the group and somebody would start talking about their monthly cycle and the new person would, would look at me 
going with you? Should we be discussing this? And my friends would say, oh, no, he's cool. He's fine. He's one, one of the girls, you know, <laughs> <laughs> full beard looking very mountain manish. I mean, you remember what I look like when I was younger. So yes. Those kinds of things were never a problem for me, but I came to find out that they weren't a problem for anybody that knew me also well enough. So it was always there. And I figured this is natural. Okay. And I can connect with my feminine side and that's fine. But as my life became more settled, you know, it, lo- it isn't like I was transitioning because there was something wrong. It's more like so many things were right as far as being madly in love with, with my wife and secure and comfortable in my job and all that kind of thing. I came to the realization that there's this whole part of me that I know is there. I never allowed myself to nurture and grow that and become more than what I was to feel more complete. At some point, it got to the point where I was really contemplating this and really thinking this over and talking over with with my wife and all that. Because, you know, when, when you're in a loving, married relationship, you're your own person, your spouse is their own person, and then there's the union of you two together. So, I mean, there would be nothing in life I, w- I wouldn't go forward without talking to her about, seriously. And just through that and being able to explore these things within myself to say, well, why is this this way? And what is it that I should be doing about it? And even so, it wasn't like a switch flipping. There were moments where I was like, oh, okay. And then come to realization about some things. That's where that is. If you need any more, just follow up and ask. (laughs) (laughs) What was the first conversation you had with your wife like? probably more nervous for me than for her. And, you know, I'm going to share a few details here, but, you know, I'm going to try to respect our mutual privacy. Of course. You fall into different things that you do in a marriage. Like I tend to do the dishes and she tends to do the laundry, you know, however it works out. You know, that doesn't mean that when I don't have the flu that she doesn't do the dishes and they pile up. It just means that. Sure. Yeah, of course. She discarded this old blouse and of course, my mind was already trying to figure things out within myself and tried this blouse on and I was musing over it. And then I tucked it in the bottom of one of my drawers. And I don't know how long it was, uh, you know, a week or two later or so when we're home alone, we're by ourselves. And she very cautiously, gently and tenderly with great sensitivity comes forward and says, look, you know, I found this thing. And so I'm, I'm just asking you about it and whatever is going on is okay. I just want to know you know, what's going on. And so that started that. I mean, and there were a lot of conversations to follow, of course, checking in with each other, you know, are you okay? And what's going on with this and moments where you have doubts and all kinds of things like that. But we were never in doubt over, over our marriage. And to me, I have some friends who are transgender and I know that there's been some struggles and I know for some, it was the end of their marriage and all that stuff. So of course, all that plays on my mind also, but I'm, My wife and I married heart to heart. I wasn't so worried about whether or not this was the end of the marriage and more just worried about, okay, how do we take care of each other as best as possible? And how do we grow together and are able to maintain each other's happiness and well-being? So unfortunately, she's she's very good at it also. So we were able to discuss, hug it out. And for us, there really wasn't any anger or tears over it, you know? (laughs) Nice. That is a beautiful story. And, and I'm glad that you married someone as beautiful as you are. Oh my God. Well, thank you for the compliment. First of all, and you paid me two compliments just now. You called me a beautiful person and I'm very grateful. Thank you. I returned the compliment in spades. (laughs) Thank you. And you also told me that I have great taste in a mate. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So it makes me wonder Mm. what it was like transitioning from a heterosexual marriage to a homosexual marriage. You know, it's funny. I, I don't particularly identify as a lesbian, but that's true. And I used to joke back in the day that I was a lesbian trapped in a man's body, you know, (laughs) turned out to be prophetic. But when I describe this to people casually or whatever, I, I say that well, my wife and I are surprise lesbians. 
But as it turns out, I mean, she was always somewhat bisexual. And, you know, we we were older when we got married. We weren't kids. So we both have a past. And she's had a relationship with a woman before in her life. So it's not completely uncharted territory for her. She still identifies as as bisexual. But the thing is, though, is that the two of us are madly in love and horribly, tragically monogamous. So it's never, (laughs) you know? But that is a thing. That is a struggle for, for some couples. But again, we married heart to heart. So she identifies with me and I with her, regardless of the rest of it. On that level, it kind of doesn't matter. Are, are we lesbians? We're two people in love. That's full stop. It's beautiful. Every now and then you'll post something on Facebook about her doing something lovely or you doing something lovely. And it just makes my day. Oh, truly. So keep posting those things so, because it's great. Well, she, she normally doesn't post a lot on the face tubes herself. You know, there's too much politics and everything else that goes on. But occasionally she does. Listen, she's, she's a hairstylist. So between all the people in her chair and her coworkers and all that, she's always hearing about people complaining about their spouse. And it almost feels important to me to put out good stories like this, that yes, you can be madly in love. <laughs> Even years down the line, you can be madly in love. It's okay. <laughs> Well, I love it. So thank you for sharing it. I think that people would see transitioning as maybe trumping many other things in your life. And I imagine that a lot of your life didn't change at all. Well, there were some things, you know, and I think part of this has to do with wrestling with a part of yourself that you weren't properly acknowledging. You remember in that video that that you watched, I'm glad that you did, that the metaphor that she gives or or the actor playing her former self gives about that hard job that just feels like a grind. Yes. There are points when you wear that like armor and also points where it becomes like a trap and you don't take care of yourself the way that you should. When I was out playing music live and all of that uh, sort of stuff, I could hose myself down and put on a suit and come out looking really good. But, you know, most of the time, I, I wasn't taking that kind of care of myself. In coming to terms with this, it almost reinvigorated my desire to take better care of myself. And I even thought at the time when I was still kind of, well, do I transition? Do I not? What am I doing here? You know, I started exercising regularly, something that I hadn't done in life. I got to get back to it. I've fallen off, but I'm slowly creeping back into it. I slimmed down to slimmer than, than I had been in years and felt good about it. And consciously at the time thought, well, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to transition or not, or even if I should or not, but I know this, taking care of myself feels good. If you feel like something is wrong or off, you're just less inclined to do. And I think that that's a symptom for people that regardless of the issues in life that are making them not take care of themselves in that way, stop biting my nails. (laughs) (laughs) taking uh, better care of my skin, something my wife was after me for years. Why don't you use lotion once in a while? You know, (laughs) just a side note, when you have hairy legs, using lotion's a drag, you know, it's clumps up in places and it just doesn't feel nice. And it just, you feel more ick than anything else. Now you got this wet lotion-y sodden hair stuck to yourself. (laughs) So, all right. So, hey, shaving my legs. And now I put the lotion on. Oh, I love this. And in those days, you know, I grew a beard quite young. I was in high school or whatever. And rarely did I go through long spates of having it shaved, except, you know, when I was in the military a lifetime ago. And it became like an identifier. And yet when you talk to a number of trans women, this isn't just me, but you talk to another, uh, a number of trans women who, when you look at their old pictures, they're furry looking guys. They'll talk about it being their denial beard. And I do recall that when I was young and out and about, occasionally someone would say to me, hey, I like your beard. And even more rare, but more than once, I would have somebody say, you know, I like your beard, but why are you hiding? Oh. Right, right. And of course, I'd say something like, well, I like my beard, which is true. And a part of me inside realized that the other thing that they said might be true also. That's really interesting. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Huh, I have no follow-up questions to that. 
Except how did they know? It, listen, I, I don't know what's in their mind. It may not have been about transitioning. It may no, just, but they still knew something. They still knew something, right. Either that or maybe they were just rude people. I would say that to anybody with a beard. <laughs> <laughs> That's also possible. It could be just thinking about this way too much. <laughs> Based on what you've said so far, I'm not sure if this will be true or not. Was there a moment that you looked in the mirror and went, ah? Well, first of all, I didn't normally look in the mirror and even when I was first figuring it out, look in the mirror and go, oh, you know, okay. that, was, that was never me. It's not that I'm staring at the mirror going, oh, you handsome person. You know, it's, <laughs> but it's just like, there I am. There's, there's the face I have and I know it well. You know, I always had long hair and you, you may remember yes, that. Yes, I do. But still, it was, you know, by now, mostly gray and mannish. And my wife in going through this, desperately wanted to get me into her chair and give me a proper cut and a dye. You know, I, you know, I've, I've often said of her that she isn't tolerant of this and she isn't accepting of this. She's encouraging of this. We're both encouraging of each other to be exactly who we're going to be. But anyway, she and I went out to one of those specialty stores that kind of caters to people finding their gender variation. And this one happened to be more geared towards drag, which was, you know, never my thing. I'm not into, into drag. And she said, well, you know what? We should get you a wig. And I'm like, okay, I'll try out a wig. And it wasn't inexpensive. What I put on this wig that had a full feminine cut, not my ratty gray. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it was that moment of, oh, just seeing the way it frames my face, you know, and, and of course I had to teach myself how to do makeup, which I do badly, but you know, I had to teach myself that my wife helped and uh, YouTube videos helped. And the challenges are different for me than say a 12 year old girl learning makeup for the first time. Well, yes, <laughs> because they can look like they're just learning how to put on makeup and no one thinks twice about it, except maybe they're Well, friends. and that's part of it. Right, right, right. <laughs> but also, you know, there's no expectation amongst my peers on how I should be doing my makeup. <laughs> you know, so right. you know, practice time at home. And, and again, thankfully, there was my own mirror, which is, which is pretty good. I'm pretty honest with myself. And, you know, my wife and son, who are good mirrors, said, do I look all right? Yeah, you look fine. You know, or even so, they're honest enough to say, you know what? You did this thing. Did, did, did you really want to do this thing? <laughs> <laughs> Is that really what you want to look like today? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, I don't wear makeup and wouldn't have the first clue. Kudos for learning it. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's another thing is, is that it's not like anybody has to wear makeup. One of the things I'm dysphoric, a little dysphoric about, and I don't have a lot of dysphoria, honestly, but one of the things I'm a little funny about is my beard shadow. I tend to wear makeup to at least cover up that. And not every day, you know, I'm, I'm at work some, some days unshaven because my face needs a break, you know, and I don't deal with the public directly. It's all phone and email. So there kind of is a feeling for me, and I'm not going to say it's true for a lot of trans women, but maybe more so for older trans women, I, I can't say that you have to at least make an effort. Part of that isn't, is less about how you feel about yourself, although there's that too, and more about when people see you out in the world, if it looks like you're making an effort, even you're treated more kindly. It's a horrible thing to put it like that, but it's just human nature, you know? Well, you had mentioned earlier in the conversation about mm -hmm. playing the role. Mm -hmm. Those weren't the exact words, but along no, those lines. No, I know. When we were talking about in my mannish ways, yes. And, and so it's similar, but on the opposite side of the coin. Yeah, and I thought about that. You know, and that's kind of a, a transitional stage also uh, that I see that, I, that I've done myself and I see with some other uh, transitioners, you know, and again, more so the older ones, the kids know better. The kids are smarter <laughs> where you had this period and thank the gods, I kept myself at home through this period to go hyper feminine. And I think part of that is because there are a lot of experiences that we missed out on not having had that from from being young. So, yes. So yeah, you, you buy the ugly dress and you put on far too much makeup and while you're figuring it out. <laughs> As you do. As Except you're does. doing it in your 40s instead of in your teens. Right, 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 right. And, you know, staying the hell at home instead of going to the uh, under the sea school dance. <laughs> <laughs> your relationship with your wife was never in question. 
I'm extrapolating from that also that your relationship with your son was not in question, though perhaps I should not. Right. And to be clear, it it wasn't. But when you're first starting this out, I didn't know that. I didn't want my wife to share it with him right away because I was still figuring it out. But she did it. And it was one of those things I was a little upset over to begin with. And she had confided in another friend or three along the way. And, you know, when you're not ready to be out, you're not ready to be out. But that I think is something that that I think other transgender people don't always understand is that the people in your life, the really close ones that love you, they need to talk about these things too. And they're going through it too. Right. 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 And so the most important factor between my wife and I is that we trust each other with the decisions that we make. You know, it doesn't always mean that one of us does, didn't make a wrong decision sometimes, but we trust that it's truly out of love and 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 being cautious if something is sensitive. Anyway, I needn't have worried about my son. And he calls me mom. Easy calls me mom, like not without even hesitation or awkwardness. And it's it's a wonderful thing. I, I love it. And if he didn't want to call me that, that would be fine too. But just love. It's beautiful. What you were saying a moment ago, it's that this pulls other people into the closet with you. Yeah. And that's not fair, especially if it is difficult for them to process. Now I have a friend and she's transitioning and she, she started even older. She's probably got about 10 years on me. And for a long time, I was worried about her and her wife and just the little bits that she would share with me. I had this feeling, and I think she still has this feeling that when her wife talks to somebody, it's exactly the wrong people. (laughs) So they're... (laughs) Right. So there's always that too. But anyway, and now it is a, a year or two down the line and they, and they seem to be making great strides with each other. Certainly they're not going anywhere, whether or not they figured it all out yet or not. I find that that beautiful, especially to hear a story that could have gone bad going well. Yes. So the two most important people, no problem. What about concentric circles outside of that? Well, I have a bunch of friends who are the family that I chose. And I am honored to think that they're the family that chose me as well. You know, people that I've known for decades now. And I wasn't so worried about them disowning me as friends, but more worried that they would struggle with it or feel some kind of way about it. And the vast majority of them came out just fine. There was, you know, one or two that had grown silent and it's just going to happen. And again, in talking with other transgender people, because it's important if you're going through this to at least find out what other people's experiences are, is that you're going to lose people along the way and you can't predict who that's going to be. That can be tough. I didn't lose anybody really, really close. Now, I did have one person. She was very much an additional mom to me. And when I came out to her, it was by phone because she lived far away. And I'm sorry to report that uh, she passed away a, a little over a year ago. I'm sorry. Me too. In telling her, she paused briefly after I told her. And then she said, well, the hardest part is over. You've decided. Yeah, right? I see you're smiling at that. Oh, wow. Yes. (laughs) That's the only limitation with podcast is that people can't see. (laughs) Right. So I thought I'd comment. (laughs) And and it turns out, I found out later that she shared it with uh, one or two other close people under secrecy not to tell anybody and all that. And, you know, she was just fine about it. Now, my father had passed many years ago, and I should have liked to have told my mom. And for this, this is going to be a little bit of a longer story. The reason why I ended up not telling my mom and my mom passed in the spring. Sorry, the mom, the surrogate mom, all the moms. I lost a couple of moms in, inside of a year. It was a tough year and I was already well transitioning. But anyway, this is going to take a hot minute to explain how I feel about my mom and why I ended up not telling her. And for this, I'm going to go back to my first marriage. Now, in my first marriage, we were married for five minutes. We lived in my parents' home. My father had passed, but the house was big enough. My other siblings were out. My mom and I had really moved from not just a parent-child relationship, but a relationship of two adult friends also. Living in the house with one of the spouse's parents can be challenging. I get it. But my parents had always made it a point to stay out of the lives of their married children, you know, not to just support their own child and talk about how terrible the other person was. That was verboten. Their adult children should work out their own lives. And the house was big enough where we really had our our very separate places to be. 
So anyway, the marriage went badly. We shouldn't have been married in the first place. And sometimes there's no good guys and bad guys. Sometimes there's just, it's just people. You know? Yes. My first wife had come home and was packing her things to, to leave, to split. And I'm already in, in a bad way, right? My mom comes home from work and I sit her down gently wanting to let her know what's going on and ask her to please retreat from this part of the house and let us have a little space. You know, I told her that my, you know, my wife at the time was upstairs packing her things and she was leaving and the marriage was ending. And my mom's instinctual reaction to this was, she said to me, did I do something wrong? And my heart broke. My heart broke in that moment. So I vowed in that moment that whatever happened in my life, that I was going to be very, very careful of my mom's feelings. Uh, and we were friends and we, and we loved and supported each other and really loved each other's independence as well and would fight sometimes. And but, you know, in a very measured and, you know, sympathetic way, I, well, you know, I wouldn't do that. I'm like, well, I am going to do that, you know, so. <laughs> but she lived life on her terms. And my parents, both of them had given me a good foundation and the space and the encouragement to be exactly who I'm going to be and to figure that out in my own way in my own time. I'm so grateful for that for that. But when I was wrestling this, I was in my 40s. By now, my mom had begun to suffer the early stages of dementia. And she was still living on her own and that was a challenge on its own. And I knew from the experience of that that however forward thinking she might be, her coming from a completely different generation. I'm 50 and I'm her youngest child. She was born in 37. So it was different times that there was going to be a part of her that worried if she did something wrong along the way. And if I had come to terms with this, even say 10 years earlier, I would have found the way to tell her. But now at the moment where her mind is starting to deteriorate in dementia, there was no way I was going to put that on her. And it became almost like this ghoulish way of thinking where I'm thinking on this, and I don't want to hurt my mom. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll just keep on the way I am and wait until she passes and then transition. And I thought, well, what a horrible thing that was. How, how horrible that felt to feel like that I was waiting for somebody to die. And so I decided to begin transitioning anyway and hid it from her and hid it well, you know. But she did comment on my long nails. You know, I'm picking her up from the hospital, right? <laughs> <Because> <laughs> for a few days, she had fallen. And I'm picking her up from the hospital and she looks at my hands and goes, I see you've grown your nails long. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> she says, well, okay, so long as you don't grow them longer, because I think guys with long nails look creepy. <laughs> <laughs> now, she's not judgmental or messed up that way. And I don't know what it was. It was a few months later, I had gone to see her and I would visit her often. So, But for some reason, however many weeks to a month or two later, I stopped by. And she saw my nails again, and they were a little bit more rounded, I guess, and whatever. And she said, I see you still have your long nails. I said, yes, I do. And she said, well, at least you have them shaped where they're kind of mannish. And I said, mom, if you don't like my long nails, next time I come over, I'm going to have them painted pink. And you can look at that. (laughs) (laughs) And and we had a laugh, and that was fine. But I wasn't going to let her know. That will break my heart going forward in thinking that I don't know how she would have felt to have a daughter. And I'll have those regrets, but I have no regrets about not telling her in the stage of life that she was in. That makes sense. Yeah. As far as other people go, I actually made a public, well, before we get to that, I I came out at work. It was getting into late 2019. I said, yeah, you know what, come uh, spring of 2020, I'm going to tell people at work because there's only so long you can wear baggy clothes to hide your breasts growing, you know. And again, I wasn't afraid of losing my job. I was more afraid of how people would react and having to be in that environment, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, late in 2019, I said, I'm, I'm going to tell my job. I don't know when. I'm going to screw up the courage in uh, sometime in the spring. And then the freaking pandemic hit. <laughs> right. As soon as you said March 2020, I was like, oh, wait, I know what happened. <laughs> right. right. I, I'll never forget. It was the last Thursday in February when the first cases hit New Rochelle. And, you know, we have customers up there. And so the phone was just ringing off the hook. And we were scrambling just to get disinfectants. And I work in a janitorial supply company. We got through the worst of it. But, you know, I 
was going into work 5.30 in the morning and, and working all day. By March, we had people out and there was less people in what's already a small company and everybody scrambling to do what we can just to, to meet the demand, keep the trucks rolling, keep our customers calm. I had one of my customers call me because she would do the ordering for a bunch of group homes up in the Bronx. And she told me that her, her brother had died. And he didn't die of COVID. He had a heart problem and went to the hospital and they couldn't take him. This was in the worst of it when they were overwhelmed. And so he went home and died. And I was hearing all kinds of heartbreaking stories like that. And I think a lot of the country that wasn't in the Northeast when the really bad first wave hit, thankfully for them, missed out on it. But they didn't know, you know, everybody I know knows dead people now. Right. But anyway... So that held off me talking to my job. And then finally, by, by late that fall, I screwed up the courage and I was going to talk to the owner or the manager first. And I hadn't decided and I was wanted to do it face to face. And the owner is so busy, he and I weren't connecting. And so finally, I, I went to the manager and I, I went to his office and I was, I was visibly shaken, like, like very upset. And I said, I, I, I need to talk to you. And, and I'm choking back what I'm about to say with the emotion of this. And closes his door and he gets real serious and he's, and he's listening. We talk, I'm friendly with these people. He gets real serious and leans in and I tell him, and then he pauses. It's an uncomfortable pause. And then he, he says, oh my God, I thought you were going to tell me something horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to talk about it. Now, the owners of the company are Orthodox Jewish and they just don't have any uh, experience with this. And I ended up sending an email to my boss, the owner, who then got back to me via email with very glowing and supportive and all that kind of stuff. They are incredibly empathetic. And it wasn't a problem. And my insistence was that I wasn't going to transition right away. And I wasn't going to come out to the customers. And that's a work ethic thing for me, because I didn't want to risk even the smallest customer having a problem in leaving the company. Because for me, for me, and that's not the right solution. But it was for me because I wanted to maintain productivity for the job. I'm not under pressure to. It's just a, a matter of how I feel about what I'm doing to help people. And I don't want anything standing in the way of that. So anyway, it was a few weeks later that I told the people in the office. And they were like, well, okay. And you know, a number of them were older people. And, and since then, I have had a problem at work. And maybe we'll talk about that as the conversation rolls on. I don't know. So that was that circle. And then before telling the rest of my family, because... For me, my wife and son, that was a, a make it or break it. My ability to be employed and earn a living for me and my wife and son was next on that level. Of course, I, there was a number of really close friends, the, the family that I chose along the way that I could tell. And then after that, I thought about you know the rest of my family, cousins and, and my, my brothers and things like that. And I thought to myself, they deserve to know. And I wrestled with it for a while, whether or not to, not to contact them privately before making a public announcement. And then I thought, I don't need any discouragement. And I love them. And I hope they come along with me on this. But I don't need any discouragement, though. And I need to do this how I'm going to do it. So I'm just going to yank off the Band-Aid. And made a public announcement on New Year's Day on 2021. This is now just a little over a year ago saying, hey, it was a long and involved post. If, if you want, I'll pull it up. I'll send you the link. And of course, it's a nervous thing to post. Yes. Right. You know, but still, I, I felt that it, I was going to come out mostly okay. And the outpouring of support was phenomenal. It was utterly phenomenal. And of course, I'm waiting for some key people like you know my, my blood kin to, to respond to it. But it was phenomenal, the amount of support. And in my coming out, I said, look, however you may feel about, about me because of this, just understand that it doesn't change how I feel about you. And that if anybody does have a problem with it, I'm not going to tolerate anybody uh, giving me grief or my family grief. So please, if, if, if this is really something you can't abide, just quietly unfriend me, do what you have to do. And that's fine. And I'll leave the light on in case you change your mind. And uh, there was, it was less than 1% of people that, that quietly left and nobody said a horrible thing like whatsoever. There were a few people like, really? What? what? You know, <laughs> all that. And then a few uncomfortable questions and private messenger and all that. And then I started, you know, getting my blood kin checking in. Some of them I'm close with and some of them I'm not. I hadn't really talked with in a long time, sending me, you know, texts on my phone and uh, messaging me privately telling me, hey, you know, whatever is going on, still love you. I, I have one or two family members that I know are struggling with this and have grown quiet. 
there seems to be some uncomfortability. And that's tragic. But I'm going to make this next statement under the caution that it is not necessarily family friendly. So you'll edit it the way you edit it. A very wise friend of mine, we were arguing about the importance of somebody else's opinion one day. And in the frustration of the conversation, she yells at me and she says, is he paying my bills or eating my pussy? (laughs) And to me, I, I have yet to find a more reasoned set of logical questions to determine whether somebody else's opinion on anything matters. When it comes to the people that didn't say anything harsh, but may have had a problem and quietly left, they don't fall into either of those categories. So so they have to live their life. And again, I'll leave the line on if they want to come back and say hello and hey, you know, I was thinking this way about it. And that's, that's fine. Everybody has to wrestle with things in their own way. I'm glad that it's been a generally positive experience. Yeah, I know. And I read the horror stories and I hear the horror stories directly from some people and and it's tragic. And I think the only way that I've been able to navigate it successfully was I really have made a conscious effort. And again, the foundation for my parents, but additionally a conscious effort to really be in love with people and not just over this issue, but other things. I've found that in putting that out there into the world, it comes back and it comes back when you need it most unasked for, unexpected, that so many people could show me at least the support. And even the ones that have a problem with the issue are just like, hey, you know what? You got to live your life. So you go do you. And you know, and that's fine. (laughs) That's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it. Right. Because COVID is still happening. I don't know how much this is in play right now, but every time you meet a new person, there's the coming out decision. Like, how do you decide to whom, when, how, well, I mean, I'm out, but I, I will say this. I do go out in my man disguise occasionally to run errands, especially at the market, because I talk to the, I go at six o'clock in the morning to get it done. And I talk to the same people every day. Uh, you know, I can tell you which of the cashiers had, had lost a parent recently and which one doesn't like her job, the guy in the dairy department and how he dealt with the gophers that were living under his shed, you know, because I love people and I love talking to people. So when I go to the market, I have on my man disguise. And I'm not at six o'clock in the morning going to fix my hair and makeup and look like I'm making that effort. And I'll wear a baggy shirt and it's winter anyway. So screw it, you know, and go about my business and be me. So yeah, so I have long painted nails. So I have a feminine haircut and people are used to, you know, and and again, maybe it's because I I, I live in the mid-Atlantic where there seems to be a lot of diversity around here. I like that very much. I'll have a side story to tell you about a guy I met from Wyoming. So for that, I go in trying to look mannish. And it used to be, there was this time very early on in the middle of the pandemic. So I got the mask on, I'm in my man disguise and I'm waiting in line and it's a different cashier because we all had to be herded differently. The cashier says, excuse me, ma'am, to me. And I'm like, well, that was a surprise, you know, so (laughs) I carried carried on, you know. And now I'm finding that, I mean, I get misgendered all the time. People call me sir all all the time. And, and, you know, I don't have a passable voice and that's part of it. And that's, it, it is what it is. But when I'm making an effort to kind of just look mannish, just to get through a task without it being hassled, I find that sometimes I've gotten misgendered the other way, you know, or rather properly gendered, versus, you know, I'll excuse me, miss. And even when I say yes, in a deep, in a bit, you know, they'll say, oh, hon, you know, and, and just it's, it's different. I think there, there was an uncomfortable moment where I went, I was off from work. I was homesick and so was my wife. And I went to pick up a prescription at uh, the drugstore and it was like a Tuesday late morning. And the people that go to the drugstore Tuesday on a late morning are old retired men. So (laughs) I walked in and there was some uncomfortableness in the aisle. I'm coming up one way. I got the mask on and everything. I had some mascara on that day, but I wasn't doing a thing. And this old guy stepped aside for me because that's what an older generation does. And I'm stepping aside for him because he's an older generation. We have this uncomfortable moment of figuring each other out. I think he's slightly less pleased when he realized that, that, I, was, that I wasn't born a woman. You know? <laughs> so, right. Uh, yeah, but he wasn't mean. It was uh, like, it was, and again, it's hard to read what's in somebody's mind and I'm just not that interested, but it was one of those experiences that made me, oh, okay, it looks like this then. 
I don't think anything of it when somebody holds a door open for me. I mean, I do that for everybody. And I always have, regardless of gender. Sometimes it's one of those simple pleasures in life. You're walking somewhere and somebody thinks to hold a door open for you. And I don't care who you are. Yes. That's always been such an odd thing to me. Like, why would you only hold the door open for some people? Right. Let's face it. It's some holdovers of misogyny. And it's not just men to blame for that, but women reinforce that too in their ways. And it's just but it's holding a door for someone is one of those things where you, you don't easily go, well, you misogynistic bastard. You know, do it for a person. I do it for all kinds of people, especially if it looks like they're struggling with packages or something. Yes. So you mentioned a story about someone from Wyoming. Oh, this is related to, to the diversity of, of New Jersey. And again, this was a number of years ago. I met you know, again, I talk to everybody and there I am in the supermarket, you know, squeezing uh, avocados or something. And <laughs> there's a very tall, very thin, weathered looking, slightly older gentleman. And maybe he had 20 years on me at the time. I don't know. Standing next to me and we, and we get to talking and I could tell right away, he's got a little bit of an accent that was hard to place. And as we get to talking, he tells me that he's moved here from Wyoming. And, you know, instinctually I say, and you came to New Jersey on purpose? Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> But the thing that he said to me, and this struck me, and this is, again, that beauty of humanity. He said, I was tired of the cowboy attitude. And the guy looked like an aging cowboy. Let's, let's be clear. So I got tired of the cowboy attitude. My sister lives here. I came here to live. And the people are so much more diverse. And there's so much more differences to talk to and learn about with the people here. That, that struck me as being like one of the most beautiful things I heard that day. And apparently I, it must have struck me harder than I thought because I still remember the story. Right. I can relate to the cowboy attitude here in Arizona. Whew. Yeah, I guess. I and mean, you're kind of an uneasy red state. And New Jersey, of course, is purple all the way. So I've traveled the South. I've been to the South. And I love the people. You know, I don't think that if I traveled the South now, they would love me as much, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, people, you know. Right. What do cis people take for granted? Well, for men folk, take care of your skin. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Taking care of yourself is good. Lotion every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> take for granted. I mean, I guess they take for granted just, I'm going to get misgendered just by walking out the door if I don't make an effort. And that's part of the, you know, the wearing the makeup sometimes. And even though, you know, again, at work, I'll wear makeup once or twice a week and that's about it. But to me, it's just a matter of the level of empathy that you feel with other people. Well, you know what? People don't mean badness if they're misgendering you. And that's the other thing that I've often thought about and said that I don't care what pronouns people use because people can weaponize the correct pronouns just as much at, right, right. You, you understand what I'm talking about. It's a yes. Level of sarcasm or air quotes or things like that. I'd rather have somebody with whatever pronoun, however they address me, however they feel about it, do it with empathy and respect. And that's all I need. Nice. I don't know that that answered the question. <laughs> it's all right. I'm not going to go there because that's not what this is about. But do you get a lot of questions about your genitals or your sex life? Very, very very few. Oh, yay. Only happened two or three times most. And each instance was from somebody who I really felt was a genuinely good person and just genuinely curious. And I you know, did take the time to explain to him, look, it's not considered a polite question. It's not the kind of question that you'd ask anybody else under any other circumstance, you know? If anybody ever came to me with that question in, in kind of a mean way, you know, I might approach it something along the lines of, well, I really appreciate your interest, but I'm happily married and don't really feel the need to answer that. And I feel I feel for you, I do, but you know, I'm taken. Not that you're a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this is an answerable question, but how do you think this experience might be different? if society was less gender rigid? Well, it's already happening. I mean, we're down the road a piece, you and I, in our age bracket. And when I think that in my lifetime, I've seen the Pope 
say of the LGBT community. Normally, I, I don't remember the letters, so I normally say the LMNOP community. Yeah, to, <laughs> to my gay friends, and they laugh. But when he can say, if a person is gay, who am I to judge? You know, from the Pope, I see a huge level of acceptance for people's differences more than ever before. It's encouraging. You know, and we look at the political divides and all of that, and all that's frightening, honestly. But I tell other people that the kids are smarter. For most young people I meet, and I'm talking anybody that's, let's say, in their mid-30s and younger, they don't care. They don't care about you know race anymore like the older generations do. They don't care about sexuality. They don't care about transition, you know? I mean, the people that are at the older edge of that age bracket and a little older who like to believe that they're allies and they are that might say oh you're so brave you know i'm like no i'm just a person i'm living my life and, I, and it's great to be recognized that. and it does take courage you know but again like how we started out there's so many other things about each person besides just that and now it's a world or at least in my area of the world where it's more accepted and and maybe that's some sort of privilege i have because i read the news i hear the stories i know what's going on and it's frightening that people are still in such a bad way about it. I look at it like this. I mean, you know, not to get on my patriot stump here. But, <laughs> and I hate using the word patriot anymore because it feels like it's been co-opted to mean something that it doesn't mean anymore. Yes. You know? But when I look at our founders, our founders were imperfect people. Their real strength was they knew it. They knew they, they had the self-awareness to know that they were imperfect people, to know they were going to make mistakes. And when they created our founding document, and they said that we are born with the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and we're born with them. They cannot, we cannot be separated from them. They are inalienable. And then they went ahead and they encapsulated that in the Constitution and made horrible mistakes while they were doing it. They knew they were making mistakes while they did it, but they needed a government fast and they did the smartest thing that they ever could do. And that's make it a living document to be able to be changed. Not easy to be changed, but able to be changed. And we've done it a number of times and almost every instance for the better. But in that encapsulate, this is why I'm a patriot, because I believe in these things. I believe in freedom of speech. I believe in the Second Amendment, as controversial as that is. You know, I believe in the Fifth Amendment and all the other ones, right, that we should have as a nation, even though we should have respect for the greater society and, and, and do. And, and this idea of service to your country, the way it used to be anyway, that we still encompass and embrace those rights. So I don't much care for anybody in my country that wants to tell somebody else how to live or how to believe or how to think or how to speak. So me pursuing my happiness is me expressing my rights. And if somebody says something against that, well, they're expressing their freedom of speech and I'm okay with that. I served my country to help protect that. But I sure wish that they would use their freedom of speech to express it for something better, something for good rather than something for stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I have no problems having that discussion with anybody. You know, there seems to be so many people that say they love the constitution and only love certain parts of it. <laughs> yes. There, there's other documents that people have the same problem with. Yeah, absolutely. But, and it's not the end all be all. Again, it's a document that was full of the flaws of our founders and the flaws along the way. And each time tried to do just exactly what it says in the preamble. The preamble says, in order to form a more perfect union, knowing that it wasn't perfect to start with and that it wasn't ever going to be perfect, but that we were going to strive to make it more perfect as best we can along the way, because people. I love how these keep coming back to because people. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we're all imperfect. I, I remember, you know, a, another wise friend of mine had once said, a normal person is someone you don't know very well yet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's perfect. And so true. <laughs> Have you noticed any differences in how people interact with you as a female than as a male? Well, like I pointed out, the, the older guy in the store, and let's be honest, I don't get out much. I work long hours, and when I'm home, I'm tired. And so it's you know my wife and I, and we're at home most of the time. But when we when we do go out, when I go out, when we go out, whatever, you know, obviously I'm a non-passable trans woman. So 
it's hard to read whether somebody's feeling uncomfortable or thinks they should act a certain way versus whether they're acting a certain way because it's natural to act that way towards a woman. I pick up some of those undercurrents. I do feel that sometimes. To me, it's, it's pleasing. It feels more natural. And if there's uncomfortableness, I wonder if that's just me reading into it more than what's actually happening. Sure. Yeah. Do you expect the non-passableness to change? Not really. It's just the thing when you get, when you hit an age and also, you know, and I wasn't going to talk about this unless you asked, but uh, you didn't ask and I'm not going to, and I wasn't going to, but here I am anyway. Well, you don't have to, if you don't want to. No, I know, but it relates. I'm not inclined towards surgery. People think, well, there's the surgery, you know? Right. And it isn't really. There's a series of possible surgeries and you can have one, two, three, five, 10 or none. That's another thing I find about the young people transitioning. They're less inclined to feel the need to. The laws have changed where you don't have to to change your gender markers anymore. And I think that's good. That but is good. For, uh, for a lot of trans women, if they're going to do some sort of surgery, they tend to start with the face, especially if they're past the age of maturity. If you are young when starting transition, you, you'll retain a lot of the, the younger looking features. The testosterone won't make the bone density as much. Lots right. of science. Sure. But again, the only procedure I would do, and I I tried once and failed miserably, would be to get my beard permanently removed. You know, and I may go back to that. That's still not story. But I look at what the typical surgeries are. Well, you know what? Maybe my I would look better if I had an eyebrow raise. But eh, (laughs) no. Okay, I have hooded eyes. You know, hooded lids. So do a lot of women. I have a, a prominent nose. It's my father's nose. And I like this nose. And I've always been attracted to women with prominent aquiline features. I don't know what, what the best descriptive right. is. You know, I feel uh, some kind of way about, about my chin sometimes, but not overly so. And, you know, a little, a little bit of contouring does, does wonders. And here it is learning makeup again. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not even so much to change the features of my face. But, you know, like the old song from the 40s, you've got to act, send the positive. <laughs> What's your experience with medical care? Well, I had very little because I'm actually very much in, in decent health and medical care tends to treat the person and not get too deep. And I haven't been in for anything serious. And when I go, I tend to go in my man disguise and, you know, it's, I haven't had uh, parts of my body sliced open and hanging out. So I, I, I really can't say, but I go for to get my blood drawn every so often. And that's analyzed by my provider for transition to make sure levels of this and that are in the healthy ways. And there's side effects and medications to be on the lookout for that you can see in the, in the blood and all that science. And I remember the last time I went trying my darndest to, to be in man disguise. That was one of those occasions where she was like, okay, hon, and, and come here, sweetheart. And, you know, who's <laughs> the one, oh, you know, oh, she knows she has a little old trans, trans lady, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and it was very kind, but yes, I can understand. And I, and I haven't been to my primary care physician in far too long and I'm thinking of changing anyway. And that's, you know, of course, those will be among the questions I asked okay, this is the Northeast. It's the most densest place here. So if you throw a rock, you're going to hit a, a family practice. You know, right. it's going to bounce off a pizza place, a convenience store and, and hit a, <laughs> a family practice. So yes. if, if they don't like me, then then they can go pound salt. I'll go somewhere else. <laughs> is there a question that you're tired of being asked? You know what? Nobody really wants to talk about it. Part of that is people just want to be kind. And part of it is people just don't want to know. So I don't really get asked a lot of questions about being transgender or transiness or anything like that. The closest I have, and I'm not tired of it in the least, is since I came out publicly, I've gotten some private messages, mostly from moms whose teen or adult child is transitioning, asking me questions on what the hell they should do. And I think that that's absolutely wonderful. And and almost all of them are very much like mama bear and going to protect their cubs and do whatever it is that they're supposed to do. Great. Right. So I find that absolutely wonderful. But as far as any questions about what goes on with me, nobody asks. And that's kind of a good sign. Nobody wants to pry. Nobody's asking the kinds of questions that you wouldn't ask somebody else in life anyway. So Right. Right. 
And I don't mind, you know, if it's somebody close and they're having an issue and they, and they want to talk about something, yeah, please go ahead and ask. If something gets tiring, I'll tell them, like, I've, I've been prattling on and on with you. And, and I told you, <laughs> well, this is the kinds of questions that are uncomfortable. And this is the kind of thing that I'm going to tell you anyway. So guess what? <laughs> <laughs> How did you choose your name? Well, it's easy enough. I mean, Mace is my name, my legal name. My parents gave it to me when I was born. And it's an unusual name. God knows why they thought of it. You know, my mom told me the story, but I've literally had people in life, when I told them my name, tell me that's not really your name. That's a nickname. That's short for something. To the point where I've had to pull out my driver's license, my firearm, <laughs> my registration, and, and say, no, this is my name. I've grown attached to it like I have my face. So I kept it and just added a Y and like to call myself Macy. And that became a, a thing. And it's kind of a, a marker where there are people that specifically ask me, well, what do you want to be called? Or, you know, or make an effort to say my name. And, oh, I noticed this. Remember, I was talking about work. This is just one of those things that I don't know if it was really there or just in my mind, right? You know, I went a long time without changing how I appear at work. And it was last fall that I finally started to. And I noticed that if I looked particularly feminine, my manager would call me Macy. And if I was coming in, you know, with a holy t-shirt and maybe unshaven because I cut my face up too bad the day before, he would call me Mace. <laughs> and it never seemed conscious on his part. Right. I have had a couple of people ask me, well, how do you prefer to be called? And, and I tell them, well, it doesn't matter, you know, but I prefer this, but either, either is fine. And we just had a long discussion about that, my son and I, because there are several people that work with unusual names. First of all, my company is owned by Orthodox Jews, and they all have their Hebrew names and tend to go by English sounding names for business reasons. Recently, one had one tell me if now that he's aging, he's regretting having done that and really wish he had stuck with using commonly his Hebrew name. And also, I find that you know the older Eurocentric people in, in our office have a hard time with names to the point where they don't even want to try. And that does bother me a bit. You know, there's a, a new guy who, uh, his name is Otto and his full name is Otoniel. And he was telling me how he loves his name and it helps him feel something about his culture, but nobody will, will say it or even try. There's another guy, his name is Carolos and people just call him Carlos and say, well, I'm calling you Carlos. And he goes, well, call me Kiro. You know, and just not even trying, not even the respect to try. You know, even hearing conversations about why do you all have weird sounding names? Even sometimes that's directed towards me. Like, what do you think about these weird sounding names? And I'm like, my name is Mace. I have no, no business comment. <laughs> <laughs> and aside to that, my oldest brother's name is Sean and he was born in 59. Just to show you how things change, but very, very slowly. His name is Sean and it's spelled in the Irish way, as is our family heritage, S-E-A-N. Going to school, his teachers had no idea how to pronounce it. And my parents had told me that friends of theirs, when my mom was expecting and they were telling them what, what they were going to name the child, they even had one or two comment, don't you think that's a little ethnic? <laughs> 1959 was a different time. Things move slowly and things are getting better. I, I really do believe that. And again, the kids are smarter. The younger people do make an effort. Names and being, you know, letting people be who they're going to be. So, yes. Anyway, I'm sorry. I went off track. Where were we? <laughs> no apologies at all. Off track is the best place to be, really. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for someone contemplating the switch? Did I say to take care of your skin? Take care of your skin. Well, that was for everybody. <laughs> that was for everybody. Yeah. Well, so the advice is for everybody. Take care of yourself. You're worth it, even if you don't transition. If you're thinking about taking medication, but you don't know if you want to or not, well, make the appointment. You don't have to keep it. If you keep the appointment, the doctor will give you a prescription. You don't have to fill it. If you fill the prescription, you don't have to take it. You have these moments along the way to think about this. The most important thing is be in love with yourself. Through this whole thing, I've been talking about being in love with humanity, being in love with people. Yourself is a people and being in love with yourself and honest with yourself. And sometimes there are people that think that they want to transition, only there's really something else wrong. You know, they have some other issues. So my advice would be, go get some of that therapy. You go get you some therapy. No, they're not going to answer all the questions. They don't know all the answers, but have a sounding board. Talk it out with the people that you love and trust. Talk to some people that are experts. Talk to some people that have, have gone through or are going through it. 
and really think about what you want to do. Don't let anybody else tell you how to do it or what to do. Let what they say be advice and signposts and road signs and things to look out for pitfalls and whatnot. But you do it and do it in your own time. Don't feel pressured to do it and don't feel pressured not to do it. Take your time with it. Have patience with yourself. It's beautiful. Good advice for really any large decision. Yeah, I think so. I'm going to finish with a question that I ask in the Person Next Door series that's not trans-specific. And that is, if you had to be famous for something, what would it be? You ask me the hard ones, don't you? (laughs) If I had to be famous for something, what would it be? It could be like famous in a niche. It doesn't have to be like famous, everybody knows your name. No, I know, I know, but it's still not an easy question, you know. No. Because, yeah, it would be wonderful to have an answer like, oh, you know, uh, creating world peace or something like that. (laughs) But come on, let's get honest here. Famous for being kind. I really like being kind. I want to get better at it. I'm not perfect at it. Not that I should ever be perfect, but I love people. I want to be kind. There are moments when I forget myself. I get angry. I get frustrated. I guess if that's uh, what I want to be famous for, then amongst the people that, that I know, it seems I'm that. And I think they're famous for the same thing. Perfect. Beautiful. Always. Thank you so, so much for talking today. I have loved this conversation. I'm so happy to have had the opportunity. And, and I really wish you luck and success with the podcast in general and this series specifically. Thank you. Earlier in the conversation, Macy mentioned a YouTube video. I will drop that link in the show notes for anyone interested in watching it. I'm going to send you a link to my, my coming out post on social media if you want it. Great. So that'll be in the show notes as well. Thanks for listening. Ordinary Chaos is written, produced, edited, and all the things by me, he. The music was created by Keith Kelly. You can find show notes and learn more about the podcast, about Keith, or about me at OrdinaryChaosPodcast.com. As always, Ordinary Chaos is an ad-free podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to OrdinaryChaosPodcast.com, scroll down, and click Support the Podcast. 